Well, let's come then to our study. I want to read the scriptures and that will clear our minds a little bit, perhaps. We turn to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. And we want to read verses 1 to 22 of this section. You know, I was thinking, lying in bed this morning, uh, this is called the Acts of the Apostles. And yet it's not the Acts of the Apostles. It's the Acts, as Joel rightly said, of God's Holy Spirit. It's the Act of Christ in building his church. And that becomes very apparent when we read portions like this. So let's hear the word of God. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest, and Cephas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all of the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, 
whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man of whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word to our hearts again. So we have been thinking about how the church was founded and then how the church grew. It grew because there was a desire amongst the people to grow. Uh, they studied the word of God. They considered uh, their times of prayer as fellowship. They worked together to spread the gospel and they did it as individuals and they knew the blessing of the Holy Spirit. And so the church continues to grow. I have entitled this address Dealing with Trouble and in some ways it's uh, you have to get that out of it. It's not directly handling the issue but what we need to realize is that when all things are working together for the good, for the growth and development and spreading of the church, that the devil himself hates it. And he rises in opposition against it. And that therefore causes trouble in the church. His opposition causes trouble in the church. And, and that trouble comes in all sorts of ways. Here in Acts chapter 3, the trouble has come because of a miracle. The miracle uh, took place at the temple gates. There a cripple who had been lying there since birth, well he obviously wasn't lying there since birth, but he, because he was born a cripple, he was brought there every day to cry out for alms. And Peter and John enacted healing upon him through the power of the Holy Spirit. And he came into the temple walking and leaping and shouting for joy. Uh, what a wonderful thing to see, huh? And it bore tremendous witness uh, to the power that these men had, the power of the Holy Spirit that was upon them. But now here today in that portion that we have just read, the Jews... The, the, the ruling council, the Sanhedrin, the people who were over the temple, they have called Peter and John to give an account for this. They are stirring up trouble. Who is manipulating them? It's obvious this is the work of Satan. You would think that the healing of a man, especially someone who had lived his whole life as a cripple, uh, would fill these people with joy. That they would be amazed at it. But they're filled with hatred. The devil inspires in them a greater hatred for Jesus. Because they know that it was in his name that the miracle was performed. 
And in the way that they, they talked to Peter and John, we can see this. Jesus the Nazarene. And that wasn't, you know, a reference that we should take as uh, being in some way a credit to him. If you remember back to Nathaniel when his brother introduced him uh, to Jesus, he says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Because that was the attitude. Nazareth was a no place. Nothing good comes out of Nazareth. And, and that was the attitude in the minds of these people as they addressed Peter and John. Who are you? Your teacher came out of Nazareth. You're our country yokels. You're our from nowhere. They are uneducated. And what are they doing? They're teaching in the temple. Who do they think they are? We are told in verse 2 that they were greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people. Of course, this teaching has become a mark of the body of believers. We thought of that yesterday. We considered those four characteristics of the early church. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, in fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayers. And therein lies the real problem. The fact that the apostles were teaching and preaching the name of Jesus. They were teaching about his work. They were teaching about his life. They were teaching about his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. These Jews who had been responsible for that death, and Peter takes every opportunity to remind them of that, they didn't want them there in the temple teaching these things. So this opposition then is fired up against the new body, the church. And there are at least three things that I believe really annoyed these Jewish leaders. And we want to look at those things because those same things annoy the devil today and can very often be the cause of stirring up trouble within churches and fellowships. And the first one here is the phenomenal growth of the church. The first thing that really annoyed them was the phenomenal growth of the church. Luke has already told us that the church at Pentecost numbered about 3,000 souls. Uh, and we thought about that on Friday night, how incredible that was, a church of 3,000 souls. But now he tells us that on this day alone, there are another 5,000 added to the church. Imagine that. 5,000. Now look at it again. It's not 5,000. It's 5,000 men. And if there's 5,000 men, 
There are others, there are women and younger people who are not numbered. And most commentators agree that at this stage, the church would now number at least 15,000 souls. Is it any wonder that these Jews are getting a little bit annoyed, a bit uptight about what's going on? It's only a few weeks since the day of Pentecost and the coming down of the Holy Spirit. And the power of the Spirit is applying the gospel so successfully that now there are over 15,000 converts. This is probably a, a manifestation of what Peter had alluded to in the sermon that he has just preached in chapter 3. There he speaks about times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord. These early believers were experiencing times of refreshing. They were being touched by the Holy Spirit. They were being refreshed. They were being renewed. They were being born again. They were being revived. Revival. <laughs> you know, we all read about revival. What is revival? Revival is a sovereign work of God in which he draws great numbers of men and women and children all at once to saving faith in Christ. And that's not my words. It's the dictionary again. And we, you know, we have grown up through uh, childhood and so on being taught about Great revivals, you know, 1859 and, uh, and other revivals that have taken place since then. What is it that causes revival? Well, there has to be something that produces a tremendous sensitivity to sin and, and also encourages a great boldness and a great courage in the people who preach. And what is this something? It is the Holy Spirit. And folks, we need to be praying as we never prayed before for that outpouring of the Holy Spirit that will inspire revival. It will inspire boldness in preaching and it will bring sensitivity to sin and it will show people of their need of a saviour and turn them to Jesus. And that's what was happening here in this instance partly as a result of the healing of the crippled man but also on top of the sermon that Peter preached. It is the Holy Spirit at work. The Holy Spirit is being poured out as it was at Pentecost. And as a result, the word of God is boldly preached. And it's effectively applied to the hearts of unbelievers. And Luke here draws attention to this mighty work of the Holy Spirit in verse 8 when he says that Peter was filled with it. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. 
What Luke wants us to see is that the filling of the Holy Spirit wasn't just for that one day, that day of Pentecost. It wasn't just a a one-off thing. He wants us to grasp the reality, the truth, that it is only by the filling and the power of the Holy Spirit that there can be salvation in anyone's heart, anyone's life. Because of this outpouring of the Holy Spirit, because of this effectiveness of the gospel, then the devil is in opposition to that. And that opposition is now just breaking out when Peter and John are arrested. They have displayed remarkable courage and boldness. The Spirit has blessed their preaching, and many are being saved. The Scripture teaches us elsewhere that every Christian is filled with the Holy Spirit. In fact, we cannot be saved without the touch of the Holy Spirit of God. And if anyone claims to have had salvation and can't testify to the filling of the Holy Spirit, then we need to be asking questions. Sometimes it can be they just don't recognize, uh, and they need to be nurtured and schooled to recognize. We call that nurturing assurance. But it's only by the Spirit that salvation can take place. Here in the book of Acts, it appears as though in particular circumstances like times of great need, times of tremendous stress, of trial, of persecution, that the Spirit comes down in wonderful, miraculous ways and enables and empowers and helps those who need it. And isn't that what the Lord Jesus promised? Remember, he told the disciples that he would send them the Helper. And that's what the Holy Spirit is. He's the helper. He's the sustainer. He's the equipper. He is the one who gave Peter this extraordinary boldness and courage that he was displaying. Think of that. This is Peter. This is the one who, when he was questioned by a little slave girl, Denied with curses and oaths that he didn't even know Jesus. And now he's preaching the gospel to the Sanhedrin. What is the difference? What has changed him? The indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And the result of the work of the Spirit is not simply making Peter bold. But it must be seen more particularly in the phenomenal growth of the church. The Spirit didn't just enable Peter to preach, but it particularly applied with great power the word that he delivered. And 5,000 men plus others were added to the church in one day. 
Do you know something? This is what we need in the church today. We need to pray for a phenomenal outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Have you read accounts of the 1859 revival? You should. You should read how the Holy Spirit worked. How people walking along the road were suddenly convicted by their sins, were seen to drop down on their knees in tears in the street and cry out for salvation. I preached at a funeral one day and I gave a pretty heavy-hitting address. didn't please some of the family members, but this person died an alcoholic or unsaved, and his sister said to me, you preach the gospel. And I preached the gospel. And, you know, there was that opposition. About two weeks later, I had a knock at the door one day, and at the door was a fella who had left Tully Vallon because I wouldn't baptize their child. He was unsaved. And he came to the door in tears. And he said to me, that sermon you preached, he said, there was one phrase on it that I couldn't get out of my mind. And the phrase was, where will you be one second after you die? And he got so convicted, he was a dairy farmer, and he was feeding the cows. He was going up the yard with a feeder wagon. He got out of the tractor and down on his knees in the muck in the yard and cried out to God for salvation. That's what happens when the Spirit of God works and applies the word that is faithfully proclaimed. I said to him, I want you to do one thing. I want you to go and talk to Dean's sister and tell her what you've told me to comfort her in her loss. And he did that. And we need to pray for this, Lord, that the Lord would would. Pour out a spirit. Yeah, there was this fantastic growth of the church and it raised hostility. But what odds about hostility? What we want is the church to grow. Let's look secondly, briefly, at the hostility of the world. Just as surely as we see the growth of the church, we see it paralleled here with the hostility of these worldly-minded Pharisees. And you know, it's still like this today. If there's anything that the devil hates and fears more than anything else, it's zeal and boldness and courage to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. The teaching of the good news of Jesus. He hates it. And that's exactly what Jesus predicted. He warned the disciples, including Peter. On this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades or the gates of hell, as it's more familiarly known as. We're not getting into an argument about that, but it should be Hades here. The gates of Hades. What is Hades? Hades is the grave. 
It's the gates of the grave will not prevail against it. Jesus builds his church. And where does he build it? He builds it within sights of the gates of hell. Where are the gates of hell? The grave. And as Jesus builds his church, Satan opposes. He raises opposition. I am certain sure that here in Clough Mills, you have had opposition. It goes with the job. In Fairview and Tully Vallon, we have had opposition. That's what happens when you preach the gospel. Who wins at the end of the day? The Lord always wins. On this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Oh yes, it will bring opposition, it will bring hard days, it will bring difficult days, but it will not prevail. It will not win. The devil is fighting a lost battle. We don't like battles. That's our problem. We don't like the opposition. We don't like the fights. We don't like it when there's not peace in the church. And sometimes we can get so comfortable with our peace that we don't want to do something that will stir it up. Here, there is opposition raised by the devil through these worldly-minded people whose little kingdom, their little domain, their religious, whatever you want to call it, is being threatened. chapter 5 the church is threatened by the devil in another way through subtle hypocrisy you all know the story of Ananias and Sapphira and I'm sure you've wondered why did God act so decisively there we know the story Ananias sold his property and he came to the church and he said there's all the money Meanwhile, he had kept back some of it. And you know there was nothing wrong with him keeping back some of the money. The problem was he came to the church and said that was all. He told a lie. He, he was putting on a show. showed that his heart was not right with God. And it was a threat to the church. And, and God dealt decisively. And so decisively that his wife, when she mimicked his sin, also received the same judgment. That's a, there's a warning for us, folk. Be committed to the church. Don't try to pretend that you're something you're not. You cannot fool God. You may fool the people around you. You will not fool God. And God is a judge at the end of the day. Not the session of the church. Not those who sit beside you in the pew. It's God you will answer to. In all these instances, the real opposition is the powers of darkness, the forces of evil, the devil, the one who tears down and destroys, the father of lies. And we could go on and give him all the titles that he's given in Scripture. 
And so the great lesson here for us to learn is that when we progress the gospel, we will have opposition, but we should not fear it. It will not win. The gates of hell will not prevail against my church. Let's see, thirdly, how the apostles responded, and this is really important to us. And in fact, it's so important, there are three things to look at, and we're only going to deal with two of them now, and we'll deal with the third one tonight. And you have saw what the title is, so you know what the third thing is. <laughs> They've been arrested, and they have spent a night in prison, and they've been dragged before the Sanhedrin as though they're only scum. And they're asked all kinds of questions. But what does Peter do? In front of that Sanhedrin, he does the very thing that got him into prison in the first instance. He preaches the gospel. Isn't that courage? It's the third sermon since Pentecost. There's a sermon in chapter 2. There's one in chapter 3. And now we have one in chapter 4. Peter is practicing what he will later preach. In one of his letters he writes, Be bold and be strong and be courageous and stand up for the truth. And be ready with winsomeness to give a reason with gentleness and respect. To give a reason for the hope that lies within you. Be ready to do that. Again, in this sermon, he makes the accusation, it was you who put Jesus to death. You see, what he's trying to do all the time is to get the people to come to a realization of their sin. He doesn't hold a grudge against these people. He just wants them to realize the truth of what they have done and what it means to them. They had crucified Jesus of Nazareth, the one whom God sent to this world to save sinners. He points them to Psalm 118. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. God is building his church. He's building it by leading people to saving faith in Christ. He's the chief cornerstone. He's the foundation. He is what church is about. And then he goes on to declare the absolute exclusivity of Jesus. There is no other name under heaven given amongst men whereby we must be saved. What an extraordinary and arrogant statement for him to make. Unless it's true, of course. Is it true? You know, the prevailing notion out there in the world today is that there are many ways to heaven. You can follow the way of Islam. You could follow the way of Buddhism. You could follow the way of Hinduism or Shintoism or any other ism that you want to think of. 
but they're all going to lead you to one place. They're going to lead you to hell. There is only one that leads you to heaven, Christ Jesus. That's what Peter is saying here. And he's saying to religious people, they're sitting there in the temple, and he's saying to them, without Jesus, without belief in him, you're for hell. In our modern society, you don't talk to people about hell. Oh, no, no. Listening to the radio on my way over this morning, I didn't really want to listen to the radio, but every time I plugged in the USB on my phone to charge, it kept going to the phone. It wouldn't let me play the USB, which I had a recording of Psalms on. So I had to listen to the radio to get my phone charged. Anyhow, they were talking to a homosexual. I don't know if any of you heard it, you know. Probably not. I, I wish I hadn't. It got my back off. <laughs> and, but I was convinced. I just listened to him talk, and he was so able to manipulate words. He was a master of manipulating words. And I thought to myself, you know, that's one of, that would be one of my weaknesses. I, I couldn't go on the radio and face a guy like that down because I don't have the skill to manipulate words like him. And yet, you know, the devil is backing these manipulators of words. That's our modern society. That's what we are living in. It's that that we have to address. Peter addresses it here by making a statement. There is only one who can save. That's the first thing he does. He preaches the gospel and points out the exclusivity of Jesus Christ as the only saviour of men. The second thing that he does, he makes a public resolve in the face of the threats of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin orders him to shut his mouth, go home and be quiet. Don't preach in that name anymore. But Peter says publicly, I must obey God rather than men. This was the church throwing down the gauntlet. Things would have gone very different if Peter had simply, okay, and left that day. James Guthrie was one of the early covenanters in Scotland. He was a man whom Oliver Cromwell called the small man who wouldn't stoop. The small man who wouldn't stoop. Guthrie was hanged for his faith in 1661 at the ascension of Charles II. Remember that timeline that Joel had up yesterday? So fit him in there. During his trial, somebody turned to Guthrie and they said to him, Mr. Guthrie, duck a little and the wave will go over you. What he was saying to Guthrie was, you know, give in to them here. 
What did Guthrie say? You cannot duck in the kingdom of Christ. You cannot duck in the kingdom of Christ. You cannot stoop. The man who wouldn't stoop. You cannot bow. You cannot give in to the threats of the devil. Guthrie didn't, and he paid the ultimate price, and he was hanged. But nevertheless, he goes down in history as an extraordinary preacher of the gospel. I'm sure most of you have read Helen Rosevere's book. Yeah? Maybe not. If you're not, read it. In that book, she describes her experiences as a medical missionary. She worked in what was known at the time as the Belgian Congo. It's now Zambia. And she writes in the book of how in June 1964 in a rebel uprising, the rebels came to the village where she was working and captured her. They took her and they tied her to a post and they raped her continually for three days. Imagine that. I weep when I think about it. She writes of when she was tied to that post, when she was being abused, she heard a voice. Not an audible voice, she said. Not something like that. Just God speaking in my heart. And he helped me to recall scripture. And that scripture showed me what was demanded of a true Christian. Can you thank me for this? even if I don't tell you why. Can you thank me for this, even if I don't tell you why? She said that's what she heard. And she writes in that book, I replied audibly, yes, if that fulfills your purpose. The question that came to me when I read that was, what would I have done in her situation? Or Peter's situation? Now today I'm going to say to you what I concluded. You need to be in the situation. There's no point sitting here today, well, I would have said yes or I would have said no. And why do I say you need to be in the situation? Because what enabled Helen Roosevelt? What enabled Peter? The Holy Spirit. And it's only when you're in the situation you will know the aid of the Holy Spirit. And if you go forward and you stand for Christ and you trust in the Spirit of God, you will see opposition. But you will also see the strength and the power and the help that you need to overcome it. God will not let you down. He has never failed his church. He will never fail his church. But sometimes we lose sight of that. The early church was able to drive forward. And, you know, I was listening to Joel and he was talking there about Ireland. 
and, and I was thinking to myself, there was a time when Ireland was one of the centers of the gospel, but it has drifted away from it. I, in my work as a photogrammetrist, had the privilege of going often to Switzerland. <laughs> Isn't that nice? <laughs> to work, which is another thing. One of the places I had to go to is a, a city called St. Gallen. St. Gallen. And in that city, there is the most spectacular cathedral. If you're ever in the Appenzeller region of Switzerland, visit St. Gallen and go to see the cathedral. That name, St. Gallen, comes from the Irish monk who founded the church in that part of Switzerland. And, you know, there are many countries in the world, there are many places in the world that can show that the origin of Christianity uh, was through some Irish man or woman who took the gospel there. Now we need to take the gospel to our own country. But those people went forward in faith, they went forward trusting the Lord, they suffered opposition, they suffered hardship, but the church grew and the church developed and sometimes lost its way. And that's what has happened through Roman Catholicism. The church lost its way. And Ireland become pagan again. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just bow to you now and we acknowledge that you are God that it's your church, and you will build your church. And even remind us, Lord, that in the building of that church, there will be pain, there will be hardship, there will be difficulty. Put on the armor. Stand and fight well. That's what Scripture teaches. So, Lord, just help us as we seek to be soldiers for Christ in our day a day when there is indeed vile opposition against the church. And help us to remember, Lord, that opposition will not prevail. Yes, it may be difficult to handle. It may cause heartache and pain. But if we stand firm for you, you will be carried through. So help us, Lord. Give us courage. Give us the power of the Spirit and strong faith to believe and trust and wait on you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.